Our uh, text today is the beginning of a series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. The religious leaders began a series of attempts to trap Jesus. They try to set him up to say something that they can use against him. And I want us to look at the text right away this morning. So we're in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to study verses 23 to 32 this morning. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, as we get into this this morning, there's a a couple of things, two things that we need to remember. The first is that Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing that, according to Matthew 16, 21, that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priest, you'll notice that that's the same as who come to him in our text, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 20, starting in verse 17 says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus entered into this controversy knowing that the elders and the chief priests and the scribes would condemn him to death. And I think we need ourselves to kind of think about this and enter into this ourselves. And think about the difficulty and the trial that this would be in the life of our Lord. You know, just try to imagine how would you feel kind of walking up 
to the Temple Mount knowing that once you arrived, the authorities would seek to discredit you and even more to destroy you. Think about kind of gathering in the temple maybe and, and you can, you can kind of see them afar off and they're, they're gathering together and now they're, they're coming towards you to question you and, and you can see their faces and you can see that these men are not happy about the things that have happened. And, and for me at least, the, the anxiety almost kind of rises up in my stomach. And yet Jesus faces all of this beautifully. The second thing we need to remember as we kind of come into this is that <clears throat> Jesus came to Jerusalem and to the temple presenting himself as the Messiah. And the crowd recognized this, they, and they did so rightly. They recognized that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey in fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy, that he was proclaiming himself to be the King of Israel, the Messiah. And they began to shout in, in uh, chapter 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they proclaimed him as the Messiah, and Jesus received that proclamation. And then the following day, in an even more dramatic action, he drove out all who bought and sold in the temple court. And so if you look at verse 12 of our chapter, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So he cleared the temple, and then he healed the blind and the lame, verse 14. Also, according to verse 15, the children were hailing him as the Messiah, crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And so if you look at verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. The chief priests and the elders were the ones who were in charge of the temple. You see, they're the ones that had the authority to, and they're the ones who actually established the buying and the selling that Jesus condemned. Their role was to keep the peace at the temple during the Passover. And so they had to, on this basis, they had to address Jesus. Now our text has the chief priests and the elders of the people. And this is likely, although we, we can't maybe be dogmatic about this, this is likely an official delegation. And if it is, this would be representatives of what was called the Sanhedrin. They were the officials who had authority over the temple. Now, theologically, these men would be either uh, Sadducees or Pharisees. But if we considered it another way, the Sanhedrin consisted of priests, who we might call the chief priests, or laymen, whom we might call elders of the people, which again is what our text has. And so again, this is likely an official delegation coming to question Jesus about everything that had happened over the last few days. Now, throughout this one day, and we're going to see a, a whole series of controversies here, throughout this one day, Jesus is challenged by a number of religious leaders, and, and Matthew 
describes them very, variously. And so if you look down at Matthew 21, 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Or in 22 and verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted out, plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, we could go to verse uh, 23 of chapter 22, that same day Sadducees came to him. If you look at verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And if you look at chapter 26 and verse 3, it says there, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And so when we think about this, what a day this would have been. This is one day in the ministry of our Lord. And it's a day of controversy. It's a day of interacting with the hypocrites who were trying to trap him. And ultimately, their goal was to kill him. Now, Matthew included this passage and, and really this, this whole section to show us again the authority of Jesus Christ. And it also helps us to understand Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And the Jewish leadership and their rejection of Jesus and his authority is going to help us to think through our own response to Jesus and his authority in our lives. And so there's a very practical lesson for us today. We're going to learn how and how not to respond to the authority of God and to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at this text under four headings. We're going to see, first of all, two questions about authority in verses 23 to the first part of 25. Then we're going to see two options for authority in verses 25 and 26. Two answers regarding authority in verse 27. And then we'll see in the parable two responses to authority from verses 28 to verse 32, the end of our section. And so two questions about authority, two options for authority, two answers regarding authority, and then two responses to authority. And so let's get into this then. And as we do, I want you to think about your own response to Jesus Christ and to the authority of God in your life. And of course, the place where we really deal with this in our own lives is via Scripture, right? This is the Word of God. God has spoken to us through His Son, who is called the Word, Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. The living Word, Jesus Christ, has given us the written Word, the Bible. And since the Bible is the Word of God, to obey the Bible is to obey God. And conversely, to disobey the Bible is to disobey God. And so as we look at this passage, ask yourself, how am I responding to the authority of God? How am I responding to God through his word? And these are important questions for each and every one of us. How am I responding to the authority of God? And how am I responding to God through his word? And so our passage begins then with two questions 
about authority. Number one in your outline, two questions about authority. When he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so there's our two questions about authority. Now we've already spoken about the chief priests and the elders. And they approached him when he entered the temple. This was either on the Tuesday or on the Wednesday. This was the day after Jesus cleared out the temple. And this was also the day that they discovered the cursed fig tree withered up on their way to the temple. And it would seem that the buying and the selling in the court of the Gentiles is no longer happening. It would seem that they haven't come back, but again, we're not explicitly told this, so we're not sure. But what we do know is that Jesus is in the temple and he is teaching. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what he's teaching. But he's going to include quite a bit of Jesus' teaching as he responds to the various opposing groups throughout this section. Luke chapter 20 and verse 1 says that Jesus was teaching and preaching the gospel. And they come to him, the elders and the, the chief priests, they come to him with a double question here. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? These things refers to his entry on the donkey, which declared him as king. The driving out of the people, turning over the tables, even the healings that happened in the temple. His refusing to silence the children who were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Those are the the things that they seem to have in mind. Now when it says, by what, the, the word what there asks, what sort of, or what What kind of authority is this that you have? And who asks about the source of this authority? Where did it come from? Now, of course, they see themselves as the ones who have the authority over the temple, and they know that Jesus hadn't asked their permission to do the things that he did. And we'll see that their question here isn't isn't what we might call a legitimate question. They're trying to trap him. See, because if he says his authority is human, they will say, then you need to stop doing what you're doing. We are the rightful authority. We are the rightful human authority over the temple. The Romans had given authority to Herod and, and, and then to Pilate as well. They appointed the Sanhedrin who chose the priests and, and everything that Jesus was doing was contrary to the human authorities, it was contrary to their wishes. But if Jesus says that his authority is of a heavenly sort and that God gave him this authority, then they will accuse him of blasphemy. You see, they're not actually interested in the truth. They've already made up their minds about Jesus and about his authority. Already in chapter 12, the Pharisees were seeking an opportunity to destroy him. This is Matthew 12, 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
And in verse 15 there, it says, Jesus, aware of this, aware that they were seeking to destroy him, withdrew from there. But this time in our passage, in in this moment, Jesus is not going to withdraw and he's going to stay. But he also doesn't easily fall into their traps. And this is going to be really an amazing thing as we see this, that the time after time they set these traps and then Jesus turns the tables on them and they fall into the traps that he sets for them. But eventually our Lord is going to confess himself as the Messiah. And so if you look at Matthew 26 and verse 63, during the trial, it says there, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And this is what they were really getting to all along. They're trying to trap him to say that he was the Christ, the Son of God, so that they could charge him with blasphemy. Now look back at our text. They ask Jesus their question, and in response, he asks them a question with a promise to answer their question if they answer his question. And so in verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. More literally here, Jesus says, I will ask you one thing or one word. See, their question was a a double question. He's kind of in response. He says, I'll just ask one. And this isn't merely a way for Jesus to avoid the question, Answering a question with a question was an accepted way of engaging in debate, especially when the the answering question kept on the same topic and really opened up the first question. And so Jesus is kind of following a, a standard way of debate in that culture. In this case, Jesus's question will actually give them the answer to their question as well. And so if they answer Jesus's question correctly, they will know by what authority he does these things and they will know who gave him that authority. His question is in verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Jesus is asking them about John the Baptist. Now, in order to make a judgment about John's baptism... To make a judgment about John's baptism is to make a judgment about John's whole ministry. John's ministry, and I I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 3 to kind of remember John and what he was doing here. John's ministry was preaching in verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John was in Judea. He was closer to Jerusalem. Whereas Jesus' ministry, so far as, as we've seen it in Matthew, has been mostly north in Galilee. 
John was in Judea by the Jordan River in the whole area of Jerusalem. And John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he preached that the people of Israel, they needed to repent. But one of the most offensive parts of his ministry was his baptism. His baptism was a sign to the nation showing them who truly belonged to the people of God. Israel, generally speaking, thought that they were okay. They thought that they were righteous. They thought of themselves as God's chosen people. They were children of Abraham. On the other hand, they thought of Gentiles as outsiders. They were not the covenant children. They were Gentile sinners, as Paul says in Galatians 2.15. And when a Gentile wanted to follow the one true God, one of the things that they would have to do is they would have to be baptized. And they would immerse the Gentile in water as a picture of them dying to their old life and starting new as um, belonging to Yahweh, as belonging to the nation of Israel. And they would also make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. And now along comes John and he says to Israel, God's chosen people, that you need to repent and you need to be baptized. You need to come out from among, even from among Israel, and make a public declaration that you are a true follower of Yahweh. And so if you look down, starting in verse 5 of Matthew 3, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And notice the language here, the Pharisees need to flee the wrath of God. They are, according to John, they're a brood of vipers and they need to repent and they need to be baptized. John's baptism was a sign of repentance. And what what the Pharisees needed to do is they needed to stop saying to themselves, Abraham is our father. And in, in, in other words, they need to stop saying, we're okay, we're part of the, the covenant people. Instead, they need to come out and identify with the true people of God through this baptism that John was practicing. Listen to uh, commentator R.T. France on our passage. He says, quote, the focus specifically on John's baptism, <clears throat> rather than his call to repentance, picks out the element in his ministry which was likely to have been found most offensive by the Jewish establishment. Then he says this, with its, and he's talking about the baptism here, he says, with its radical implications for the membership of the true Israel, a theme which will be explored further in Jesus' parables, which follow in verses 28 to chapter 22, 14. End quote. And I think France is exactly right here. We're going to see as we work through this whole section that Jesus is going to tell them that they will not enter the kingdom and that they do not belong to the people of God. 
You see, these religious hypocrites, if we can call them that, they needed salvation. They needed to repent and believe. Now, before I, I kind of move on here, I, I should say that our baptism, Christian baptism, is based off of John's baptisms. And one of the things that it also does for us, even as it did in John's day, is that it's a public testimony that the baptized person has turned from their sins to identify with the people of God, which in our day is the church. And so baptism sets us apart as those who belong to the Lord and, to, and belong to the church that he is building. And that's why baptism and membership go together at Grace Bible Fellowship and at most biblical churches, because to be baptized is to kind of publicly declare that you belong to the church. It's a public declaration of God's work in your life, and it's a sign that you identify with the church, or in other words, that you are a member of the church and you're part of what God is doing here. And so let's keep going. There's one more thing as we work through chapter 3 here that we need to remember about John's ministry, and that is that he pointed people to Jesus Christ. Or maybe we should say it this way, he pointed people to Jesus the Christ. And so if you look at verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John's baptism made a separation amongst the people of Israel. And it was a baptism that marked people off as having repented and having belonged to this movement that John was the forerunner of. But the one who's coming after, Jesus, the Christ, the, the one coming after him, he would make a, a greater separation. He would make an eternal separation. He would clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. And so that was John's ministry. That, and that was the two questions as well. Two questions about authority. A double question by the leaders and a counter question by the Lord. And now they're going to answer or they're going to res respond to Jesus here. And I called this number two, two options for authority. Two options for authority. If you start middle way through verse 25, we're back in Matthew 21, and they discussed it among themselves saying, you know what, let me, let me just read that again. So verse 25, here's Jesus' question. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we, say from, if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Jesus gave them two options at the beginning of verse 25. It was either from heaven or from man. And those were really the only two options for their question about his authority as well. There's really only two options. It's from man or from heaven. From heaven is a way to say from God without using the divine name, which in that day the Jews avoided because they were afraid of breaking the, the second commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so they would say from heaven rather than from God. But remember here, Jesus was teaching and, and they came and they interrupted his teaching, which wasn't necessarily considered rude in those days. And there will have been a whole crowd witnessing this encounter. They were there for the teaching and now the Pharisees or the elders come and interrupt this. And so there's a, a crowd of people around and they're, they're witnessing this encounter. And the questioners now, the, the leaders, they get away by themselves to discuss it among themselves. And what really sticks out here, I think, at least to me, is that they're not really concerned about what is true. They're not really concerned about the truth of the matter. You see, they don't really care about which answer is right. What do they care about here? See, they care more about how their answer will make them look than they care about the truth. They care more about winning this debate. They care more about retaining their authority. And all of this shows that they're not really fit to lead God's people. See, God's people need to be led by truth. They recognize that if they say John's authority came from God, that Jesus will have them. And they will show that they're disqualified leaders who have not submitted to God's authority because it was well known that they had not been baptized by John. Do you kind of see what's going on here? See, if they say John's baptism is from heaven, but they themselves weren't baptized, they have not done what they themselves know that God would have them do. And so they go, well, I can't say that. We, they can't say that. But notice again, they're not really concerned that they've not done what God would have them do. That's not even at all a concern of theirs. You know, as, as we often hear around here, they, they might have said something like this, well, I'm just not convicted about it. I'm just not convicted about it. Well, okay, so they're not going to do that. They're not going to say that John's baptism was from heaven. So what's the other option? Well, they could say that John's baptism is from man, that it was John's idea, that, that God doesn't really require it, 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 require it, it's just something that, that John came up with. But something keeps them from saying that. Now, what is it that keeps them from saying that? Wow, look at it. They are afraid of the crowd. They are very honest in that moment. They are, we are, they say, afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And this is going to come up again. Look at the very end of chapter 21. And although they were, this is Matthew 21, 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Herod himself was also um, paralyzed by a similar fear, uh, and he didn't want to kill John the Baptist because he was afraid of the crowds as well. And so they, they, they don't want to go against the crowd. And in that sense, they've, you know, or sorry, let me say, in, in a sense, if you think about it, they've, they've kind of already gone against the crowd because they were not baptized, right? And so the, the crowd, most of the people in Jerusalem thought John was a prophet and they were baptized by John's baptism. And so in a sense, they've already kind of gone against the crowd and not been baptized, but the people were willing to put up with that. 
You know, they still thought of their leaders as righteous, and so maybe they didn't expect that they would need to be baptized for repentance, even regardless of what John said. But the people would not put up with their leaders saying that John's baptism was from man. At least that's what the leaders thought. They thought, if we say from man, the people will reject us. They were afraid of the response of the people. And and you know what this is. This is called the fear of man. They were afraid of the response of the people. In Luke 20, verse 6, in the parallel passage, it, it says there, But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Again, that was Luke 20, verse 6. And one of the things about fear is that it often makes us irrational. Fear often makes us irrational, and we jump to the worst possible outcome. If we say from man, they're going to stone us to death. They're going to pick up stones right now, and that's going to be the end of us. And so fear makes us irrational, and we jump to the worst possible outcome. And we become convinced that those bad things will happen to us if we do such and such a thing. The fear of man also has a silencing effect on us. You see, the people, they won't stand up and say what they really believe because of this fear. They they don't want to say what they really believe because they're afraid. In fact, think about this for a minute. What do they really believe? I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. What do they really believe? And there's only two options, right? Either they believe that John's baptism is from God, but they are disobedient, Or they believe it's from men, but they're afraid to say it. And so fear keeps them silent. And really, regardless, fear keeps them silent. And the fear of man also keeps us silent at times when we ought to speak out. But as I've been thinking about this this week, another option here comes to mind. Sometimes this fear of man will keep people even from making a decision or even from thinking about things that they should think about. And maybe that's where the chief priests and the elders really were at. See, the fear of God should have motivated them to answer the question about John's baptism. And they should have answered that long ago, three years ago, they should have known whether John's baptism was from men or from God. But they were afraid. And they thought to themselves, what will the people say? What will the people think? What will the people do if we do this or that? And so this fear kept them from even making a decision on what God's will was for them. And for us, the only way to overcome this indecisive, silencing, and irrational fear of man is to be captivated by the fear of our glorious and awesome God and his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, a high view of God puts the thoughts of men to the ground. But these people, these leaders, they did not have a high view of God. Even for all of their religious observance, they did not have a high view of God. And after their deliberation, they came up with an answer in verse 27. This is number three in our outline. We're going to see now two answers regarding authority. Verse 27, the leaders give an answer and then Jesus will reply with his own answer. Verse 27, so they answer Jesus, we do not know. 
And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They do not know. They do not know where John's authority came from. And their indecision seems to get them out of their dilemma, but in reality, it ends up disqualifying them. Because if they cannot decide about John, they show that they have no discernment. See, there hasn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years, and all of a sudden, here comes John in the spirit and power of Elijah. As Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 9, John was more than a prophet. In verse 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest saint who had ever arisen in the history of the world. And they can't even tell, they can't even decide if he is from God or from men. You see, if you can't discern the greatest one who ever arose, you have a serious lack of discernment and you should not be a leader of God's people. And this shows then that they cannot possibly discern Jesus' ministry either. They can't possibly judge Jesus if they can't decide about John. Because John said the one that was coming after him was going to be greater than, than him. He wasn't even worthy to loose his sandal or to hold his sandal. Now I should say at some point here, isn't it obvious that Jesus' authority comes from God? When he comes in the power of God and he does the very things that Scripture prophesies the Messiah would do. But these leaders, they are blinded by their unbelief. They're blinded by their unbelief and they can't make a decision. And so Jesus won't answer them either. Verse 27, he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You won't answer me, so I won't answer you. It's just brilliant, Jesus' reply. Brilliant. But that's not the end of the exchange because he goes on to actually answer them by way of three parables Starting in verse 28 and following, we're going to look at the first parable today and we're going to call this number four in our outline. We're going to see two responses to authority, verse 28 to 32. Often called the parable of the two sons. So two responses, two sons. Two responses to authority are illustrated by the two sons and how they respond to their father. And Jesus begins in verse 28, he says, what do you think? And this opening question invites them and it invites us as well to really think about the answer here. We need to think about this. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Verse 31, Jesus asks, which of the two did the will of his father? Now, sons would often work together in their father's vineyard. And the father commanded his first son, and maybe that means it's his oldest son. And he said, go work in the vineyard today. And surprisingly, the son said no. He says, I will not. I, I don't want to. I, I, I will not do it. And this was very uncommon and, and highly disrespectful to say, I will not to your father. And so in that day, this was almost an unheard of thing to say, I will not. 
But afterward, the son changed his mind. It means he regretted it. He changed his mind. Sometimes that word even goes so far as to mean that he repented. He said no, but then he went. And he did what his father asked. The other son was just the opposite. He's very respectful here. He says, he, literally, he says, I, sir, or even I, Lord, and, and implied then is, yes, I go. I'm going to do it. I, it's almost like I, I is kind of how I think of it, like you'd say if you're a sailor. I go. But for all the outward pleasantry that this son showed, he didn't actually go to the vineyard. He didn't actually do the work. And Jesus asked a simple question in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Okay, so far so good. But take a deep breath because they weren't expecting this. Like what comes next? I just, I wonder what they thought would happen. And I think it takes them a few interactions with Jesus to realize that they better just stay silent and not say anything to this guy. But look at what he says. Look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now there was no one lower or more sinful in the eyes of these religious men than tax collectors or prostitutes. You see, they were the people that said no to God. And they had abandoned his law and they had gone their own way headlong into sin. And Jesus said, these sinners, they're going into the kingdom. That's present tense. They are going into the kingdom before you. And the idea then is that, that these tax collectors and prostitutes are leading the way in righteousness and what you should have done. And it's not necessarily that the leaders would enter after when Jesus says, go before you. Jesus is simply leaving room for them. Perhaps they also will enter the kingdom of God, but so far they have not. And so what a blow to the pride this would be. Tax collectors. You know, if a Pharisee, you know, he would almost want to spit when he said tax, tax collectors, prostitutes, you know, I don't know, we don't really do that in our culture, but there's just, we need to think about how despised this would have been. What a blow to the pride. Entering the kingdom of God before me, never, never. And Jesus explains in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. And this speaks of John's authority. The way of righteousness is God's way. John was a doer and a preacher of righteousness. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. The sinners believed, they repented, they received John's baptism, but you, you did not. And Jesus goes further now and he says, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. You see, the sinners, they were like the first son in the parable. They said no to God and they became tax collectors and they said no to God and they became prostitutes and they said no to God and they lived in sin, whatever it was. 
But when the prophet John came and he, and he said in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they had a change of mind. And they repented and they, they rethought their life and they came to their senses and they believed John and they were baptized by him. And when the leaders saw this revival and they saw this mass turning to God, they should have recognized that this was the work of God. They see they were like the second son in the parable and they said yes to God. And they made a a pretense of following his law, but they did not follow through when God's messenger, John the Baptist, came and called them to repentance. And they were not baptized with the baptism of John. Listen to Luke 7.29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And as Jesus stood before them, even in that moment when the Son of God stood before these leaders, they had an opportunity to change their minds and believe John. And to believe John would mean to believe Jesus. And so Jesus had very graciously turned the tables on them and exposed their hypocrisy. He showed them that they had rejected God's purpose for themselves, and unless they repented, they would not enter the kingdom. And when we come now to think about ourselves and how to apply this text to ourselves, I think there'd be an endless uh, specific supply of maybe specific things that we could think of in in ways to apply this to our own lives. See, this text touches really on the whole realm of our obedience. Near the beginning of the message, I asked you to ask yourself, how am I responding to the authority of God? Or how am I responding to God through his word? And I want to keep this very general and, and broad right now because each of us will have our own areas where the Lord is calling us to obedience. You know, I don't know where it is for you or, or even sometimes where it is for me, but there's areas in our lives where God is calling us to obedience. And this text, and especially the parable, it teaches us that, that merely saying, I go, Lord, is not enough. Merely saying, yeah, yeah, Lord, I'll do it, it's not enough. Merely looking obedient outwardly is not enough. Coming to church on Sunday and and looking good with a smile in your Sunday best is only really the very beginning of what our Lord requires of us. Jesus has been teaching us in this gospel that we need to do the will of his Father in heaven. Not to earn our salvation. We could never earn our salvation, but a, a growing obedience is the only proof that we can give that we truly believe. Another application that's closely connected to this is to see in those, in these hypocritical leaders, what should not be true of us. We see, we see them as kind of a, a model of what not to do. You see, they didn't really care. They didn't really care what was true. They didn't really care what pleased God or, or what didn't please God. They just wanted to do what was convenient for them. They just wanted to continue doing what they had always done. We've maybe heard that before, they just, but that's what, it, what we see in them. They just wanted to continue to keep the traditions and to do what they had always done. They just wanted to keep from upsetting the people around them. And they were happy to say 
They were happy to say, I don't know what God's will is. And I doubt, as I think about that, I doubt that they saw any particular danger in such a position. To just say, you know, I don't, I don't really know what God's will is. But friends, that is suicide for the soul. Indifference about truth, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And Jesus shows the ultimate path that that leads down is the path to hell. It's dangerous. We need to decide about truth. We need to be constantly reforming and growing in our knowledge of the truth. And then we need to put that truth into practice. And the answer to both of these points of application in regards to obedience and regards to seeking after truth is to have a biblical fear of God. You see, a high view of God makes us delight in him and in his ways so that we want to live in ways that please and honor him. And so a a fear of God, a high view of God motivates us to learn his ways and to learn his will. And it motivates us to do his will and to walk in obedience. Jesus is God. He is our Savior. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And he is our authority. He is the ultimate authority and we must therefore learn his ways and do his will. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we seek to apply this text, that you would help us to know your will and to do it. We pray that you would help us to constantly be changing our minds and being reformed by your truth, transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray that you would do that in our lives, that you would sanctify us, And that you would help us to walk in obedience. We recognize you are our authority. This is your world, not our world, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to submit to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll please now stand as we sing in response.